Hey everyone and welcome to Web3 for Gen Z, where I interview Web3 leaders about their experiences and advice for Gen Z. You might have heard of CryptoKitties, the wildly popular blockchain game. Back in 2017, CryptoKitties became so famous that it caused congestion on Ethereum, the blockchain it was built on, and effectively took the whole network down. So Dapper Labs, which is the company that created CryptoKitties, looked for a better solution. In the process, they ended up creating their own blockchain for apps, games, and NFTs, like CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shop. They call this blockchain Flow. Flow is special because it is designed for high performance. It uses an optimization where nodes running the blockchain are split up into different roles. Some nodes decide the order of transactions in the blockchain, and some handle the computation associated with each transaction. This kind of concurrency increases the throughput of flow to several magnitudes greater than the original Ethereum. Well, today I'm speaking with Alexander Henschel, who is the co-founder and chief protocol architect of Flow Blockchain, which basically means that he's one of the big brains who designed Flow. Alex is a researcher by heart. He has a PhD in quantum computing and 18 publications to his name. So today in this episode, I'll dive deeper into the creation of Flow and what it's like working as a leading researcher in Web3. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Could you share some context on your work experience ever since you graduated all the way from undergrad and how you ended up working at Flow and Apple Labs? Certainly. I originally started a, uh, a program in physics and computer science. During my university education, I took multiple math courses in computer science. I took a lot of like theoretical computer science courses. When I further went on, I focused on quantum mechanics and physics and complexity theory and computer science. And uh, after my master's, I went on working in, in like quantum computing, which is an area which nicely intersects computer science and physics. I did a PhD in that area, worked on machine learning applied to quantum systems, which back then was a just relatively new area. And after I, I finished that, I started my first job, which was at a like big electrical engineering company in Germany. It's Siemens. There, I did a lot of machine learning, data science in general, and software engineering, of course. And from there on, I continued to, to the parent company of DAPA Labs, that is Axiom Zen. I started there also as a machine learning engineer. And when Axiom Zen started a project, an exploratory project in the space of blockchain. I joined that a little bit later. You might have heard about CryptoKitties. That was the sort of first proof of concept where Axiom Zen worked with blockchain technology. And blockchain is very mass heavy, very algorithmic heavy. So I guess my background just fit the needs of the project. I started then getting more involved in the blockchain space, reading a lot of papers, investigating and researching many of the involved algorithms, something like consensus, how do you do randomness in a blockchain? So I read papers in this domain. And so that was essentially my way into the domain of blockchain and Web3 more broadly. And then when Palaps decided at some point to, to contribute to a larger blockchain ecosystem or start a larger blockchain ecosystem, which now is Flow, then was already in the space. And uh, I 
I just continued down that path. I was about three years ago, four years ago. And here I am now <laughs> as a protocol architect for Flow. What exactly was Axiom Zen? Because I think that's the first in our conversation as the parent company of Dapper Labs. What was happening behind the scenes? Oh, Axiom Zen was or is, they describe themselves as a venture studio. It just back then it was a mature startup doing a variety of exploratory projects. And we played with a lot of like different technology from machine learning to virtual reality. And also, of course, blockchain, because it was just coming up a new surfacing technology back then, three, four, five years back, and getting a little bit more mainstream traction. And uh, DAPA Labs at some point started to research potential approaches for making blockchains more scalable. You might have heard that a lot of the earlier blockchain systems have, have throughput limitations. That means they're only able to process a limited amount of transactions per second. And DAPA Labs experienced that very, very directly with the blockchain or Web3 project they did back then. CryptoKitties, you might have heard that. It's essentially a little breeding game where you can breed cats on the blockchain. And that generated a surprising amount of traction. A lot of people were interested and it like put a lot of load on the Ethereum blockchain. You could even say that it overloaded the Ethereum blockchain. So that was the December of 2017. And DAPA Labs, or back then still the Axiom Zen team, was asking themselves the question, well, so if we're thinking about building a, an experience, a game, something like that, with the goal of mainstream adoption, what blockchain platform could we build that on, right? Because we've just seen that Ethereum back then still had major scaling limitations. And so that sort of, that resulted in the investigation of more broadly blockchain technology and what avenues would be useful for making blockchains more scalable. And that in turn then resulted into like conceptual designs, which are now its own decentralized system, which is Flow, the Flow blockchain. That's really so helpful background. Thank you so much. Let's set some more context on the exact situation when Dapper Labs had been investigating blockchain scalability, but the conceptual designs for Flow had not come up yet. I remember reading about this sort of unlock from the co-founder of Flow about the separation of consensus and computing. Could you walk me through how that original idea sort of burst into place that it ultimately resulted in flow? So back then we were investigating a lot of different scaling approaches, right? So one of the relatively prevalent scaling approaches is sharding. So where you essentially just distribute the work between very many similar systems. And so that is a technique which is used generally in databases and distributed databases. But distributed databases also use a similar concept of separating consensus and compute. If you have transactions coming in from all over the world, first, what you need to do is you need to agree on an ordering, right? So consensus here means we agree on the order, but consensus doesn't necessarily mean that you also have to agree on the result. And the then the compute is just taking that that agreed upon order and applying it to your state and producing the result. And so in a certain way, we took this 
sort of inspiration from distributed databases and carry that or extended that over to blockchains. In blockchains, that entire, that entire consideration becomes a little bit more complex because in blockchains, you also consider the possibility of malicious actors participating in your system. You actually explicitly assume that you have a small but non-zero fraction of actively malicious actors, and you expect that your blockchain protocol can deal with that. And so it requires a little bit of an extension of this sort of idea of consensus, separating consensus and compute to make that resilient against malicious actors. But originally, it's, the idea is not entirely new. Well, I'd love to dive deeper into the separation of consensus and compute with a more simplified example. Let's just say we have two transactions coming in. Let's go to Alice and Bob Ashley. Let's say Alice and Bob submit two transactions and we have this shell or sandbox environment of five nodes in our entire ecosystem. And those five nodes are communicating with each other to process the next block. Could you just give analogies of how those two transactions would be processed normally and how those transactions would be processed, computed, and then put into the block with flow. Does that make sense? That, I think that's an excellent example. Thank you. So we have those two, two transactions. One transaction is from Alice and the other transaction is from Bob. And then we have five nodes in the system where the system overall should process those transactions and ideally produce, or not ideally, but necessarily needs to produce a correct result. And we're also assuming that some of those five nodes, let's say maybe one or two, let's say one, could be actively malicious or not play by the protocol rules. So the first step is that Alice and Bob, they sit somewhere on the planet behind their cell phone or their laptop, and they submit their transactions. And so some of the nodes or one of the nodes Maybe the computer is closer, uh, that node is closer to Alice. We'll first see Alice transactions, Alice transaction, and then subsequently see Bob's transaction. But as we think of the blockchain being globally distributed, another node of those five nodes might first see Bob's transaction and then Alice's transaction. And so the order might, might make a difference here. So assume both Alice and Bob are trying to buy a painting. So they are submitting bids for an auction for the painting. And so you now you could assume that they're both bidding the same amount of money and that the rules of the auction are whoever makes the highest bid first gets the painting. So if you naively just take the transactions in the order they come in, you first one node would first compute Alice's transaction and then Bob's see, okay, Alice has made the highest bid, so Alice gets the painting. The other node sees first Bob's transaction and then Alice's. And given that they've both made the same bid, the order matters. And so the other node might decide that Bob gets a painting. So what we see here, based on this example, is that for this distributed system to produce a sort of consistent result, we first need to agree on the order. And let's say the earlier blockchain systems like Bitcoin, they, they do the agreement of the order and determining the result in one operation, so to say. They would say, all right, we agree that maybe Alice's transaction comes first. And then it's Bob's, and the result is Alice got the painting, right? So that is one step. In Flow, that, that would look slightly differently. So in Flow, we would first agree on the order and say, okay, Alice's transaction is first, and then comes Bob. But we don't make any sort of assertion what the result is. So th th this agreement of 
first executing Alice's transaction, then executing Bob's transaction. This agreement is essentially the block in flow. And so that block is produced and it only defines the order. But computation is once you have defined the order of operation, the result is deterministically or is deterministic, right? There is no ambiguity. You just you don't know the result yet, right? But if you just were to execute the transactions or the operations in the predetermined order, who does that would arrive at the same result. And so this is the underlying idea behind flow, that the blocks only determine the order of the transactions, and then the blocks go to some other nodes in the system, and they produce the result. So in our example of having five nodes, right, we could say, three of those five nodes, they agree, their job it is to agree on the order of the transactions. So those three nodes, let's call them consensus nodes, right? This sort of agreement process is generally called consensus. So we take our five nodes and we split them up. We say those three nodes do consensus and those two nodes do execution. The three consensus nodes agree on the order. They form that block and say, first execute Alice's transaction, then Bob's. And that block goes that's essentially the transaction log we've talked earlier about. So that block goes to the execution nodes, the other remaining two. And while the execution nodes do their work and compute that block, the three consensus nodes can already agree on the next transactions, on the order of the next transactions which are coming into the system. So it's essentially a concurrent process. Consensus already can extend the transaction log, right? While the execution nodes in the background work on applying the transaction log and computing the result. Okay, that's a, that's a really great example. Just to summarize then, with all the chains, the process of consensus and execution was quite sequential and all the nodes would first agree on this, the order of the transactions and then compute the results. But with flow, you're adding concurrency to these two steps. So some of the nodes, the consensus nodes, would be agreeing on the order first, and then the other nodes would be simultaneously executing the results of the transactions. Would you say that's a good summary? Yeah, that is a good summary. There's a little bit of ambiguity here, what you call the block, right? Because in Flow's context, the result is not really included in the block. You can think about that a block would say, first execute Alice and Bob's transaction, and then later comes a block, another sort of subsequent block, which says, oh, and by the way, the result of that earlier block, like three steps ago, was Alice gets a painting. So the result essentially comes is included in a later block. But I think that is more a technical sort of a technical design aspect. But I think your summary of saying that execution and consensus happen concurrently, I think that is the key insight here. What's the key unlock from increasing throughput in blockchains? I know you talked about increasing mainstream adoption, but Perhaps if you could bring the Ethereum merge and L2s and just generally scalability solutions into light, why exactly has the whole industry been trying to increase the scalability of blockchains? Maybe, maybe let me start with a little bit more of a broader consideration, and then I'll come back to your specific question of why do we need to increase the throughput of blockchains. Maybe first let's talk about what do we desire blockchains for? What do we want to use them Absolutely. for? And in earlier blockchains, right, Bitcoin as the first example, it's a computationally very, relatively simple model. So you take one particular application, right, in, in, in that it is essentially emulating 
a currency, you're counting units of some Bitcoin. And you can transfer those units from one account to another. So essentially, the mass behind that is very simple. You have addition and subtraction, and you need to keep you need to track balances. So that was the first application. And I like to compare that to the old style cell phones versus the current day smartphone. So on an old style phone, the thing was built to do one thing, and that was do a phone call. You could maybe play some sort of very basic games on your old flip smartphone, but that was not what it's designed for. It was a special purpose designed device to do one particular application. Similarly, Bitcoin was designed as a special purpose system to do one thing, to track individual units of tokens. The smartphones have evolved from flip phones, right? So for a smartphone, you say, well, smartphone is a general purpose computer. It can do any sort of thing. And so with blockchain, we see a similar sort of evolution. We see the evolution from a special purpose system to essentially a globally distributed operating system. It's a fault-tolerant, globally distributed operating system on top of which you can run any sort of general purpose program. So it's essentially a distributed computer. And there are a lot of really valuable use cases for such a distributed computer, which is not controlled by any individual sort of business entity or government. And it just it's just an infrastructure similarly to the internet, right? And if you think about blockchains in this sort of context, right, it becomes relatively apparent why you want this infrastructure to be scalable. For the internet, we desire it to transmit a lot of data and that data grows, right? With our applications, with more applications, we want to transmit more data. And with blockchains, it's likely a similar uh, scenario, right? So for now, we do relatively simple things or we run relatively simple programs on top of blockchains. CryptoKitties already makes the first step and say, hey, why don't we why don't we run a game on top of a blockchain, right? That's also only a program. And you can think about a lot more use cases for this to track certain things, to do simple computations. And in the context of just a global infrastructure, of course you want that global infrastructure to support a lot of load, right? So you want a lot more than just 10, 20 or 100 transactions you want thousands of transactions. And maybe in 10 years, we want something like a million transactions per second. So the system really has to have a lot of throughput to to essentially satisfy that vision of a globally distributed operating system for any sort of program. Thank you so much for that context. That's really helpful. I think the examples between internet and smartphones alongside blockchains really clears up the need for throughput. When you wrote and researched the original idea for Flow. That was, I'm pretty sure, a big unlock for building a new blockchain that was more scalable. And I'm sure the next few months proceeded with building up the chain itself. Could you tell me what you've been working on and what problems you've been solving at Dapper Labs since Flow was launched? So essentially, I'm still working to evolve Flow Dapper Labs has a team which they essentially dedicate towards Flow because Dapper Labs itself is a relatively strong user of the Flow blockchain as an infrastructure. When we initially built the proof of concept, the prototype for Flow, we focused on, on the happy pass. So that means if all nodes play by the rules, what would happen? So that also raises then the question, so what do we do with a node? 
that doesn't play with the rule. That is a lot of engineering effort, right? On top of just making the sort of happy path in the blockchain work. So that has certainly been a strong focus of mine over the last two years. The other thing is that parts of the blockchain um, which any blockchain has something like consensus. So agreeing on the order of the transactions, that that is an ongoing area of research, academic research. There's constantly a stream of new publications from university groups or also companies having research projects in that domain. And so I keep up with those publications. I read the publications. And when there are new improvements, we evaluate whether those improvements would we expect those improvements to make a big practical difference. And if we expect those improvements to be important, then we try to integrate them in our code. That is also a relatively exciting project. You get to read academic papers. You get to think about the subtle details of the algorithms which are described in those papers. And then you can you get to think about how to implement that in the existing code base. And maybe the last aspect, what I've been working on is performance, right? So we've talked about that we desire a high throughput for the blockchain. When you write your first sort of few prototypes, they usually do the thing they're supposed to do, but they're not super performant. And then you get to a point where you realize, oh, this component here is a bottleneck. And if I want the overall system to run faster or have go through more transactions per second, I need to improve this particular component. And then you start optimizing the algorithms. So those are relatively typical sort of areas for a protocol architect in the blockchain space, that you deal very heavily with those security aspects of the system. And you're always trying to produce positive evidence that your system really is secure. It satisfies all the safety guarantees. I personally find that very satisfying to not only write an algorithm, but also write a proof in addition that the algorithm will always produce the right result and will always produce a result in the first place. Great. That's really good background for the problems you've been working on, but also the aspects that a protocol architect would be looking at. And this ties into my next question, actually. We've talked about performance and security and implementations of any new algorithms as some of the considerations that a protocol architect has to look at. How would you describe from a pretty higher level what the role of a chief protocol architect looks like on a day-to-day basis? The protocol architect's job on a very high level is to make sure that the system satisfies all the safety guarantees you have set out in the beginning, right? Before you start implementing anything, you usually agree on what sort of safety guarantees you want, what requirements you have for your system. And the architect's job is to make sure that in the end, the system really satisfies those requirements, right? In a more day-to-day basis, in practice, that means you a lot of times go through a cycle of three steps. So there's a conceptual phase, there's implementing a prototype, and then there is maturing and optimizing the prototype into a mature, stable software system. So in the conceptual phase, you start thinking about what requirements you have, what design goals you have. You review existing research, narrow down on a few promising approaches, and then you have to understand every individual aspect of the approaches you're going to further investigate, right? You read blog posts, you read related research articles, you do a lot of 
scratches on paper and really try to understand how that algorithm works so that you haven't, haven't missed anything, haven't missed any edge case. And potentially you even write some minimal code examples or experiment a little bit with coding. And, and then you go to an implementation phase where you start working on a prototype in more detail. So you implement your core components in some programming language. You have to implement something like the consensus system, cryptographic proofs, and in blockchains, you usually also deal with a lot of graph algorithms, which you then have to implement or find performant implementations you can use. And then the third phase is maturing and optimizing your implementation. And while you optimize your core components, make them work nicely together, make them more fault tolerant, you in the meantime, figure out the few auxiliary components you've not looked into detail and essentially start there again with the conceptual phase. So it's an iterative approach, right, where you st start with the biggest challenges and then work your way more and more towards the sort of smaller components of the service or of your infrastructure. Thanks for that overview. I'd like to pivot the conversation away from Flow and Dapper Labs, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about other people that you work with, engineers and researchers, what would you say are the two or three qualities that set apart world-class engineers and researchers that you worked with? I think for engineers and specifically tied to research, I think scientific rigor is a very important quality. This scientific rigor, the drive for evidence is a very important part of your work. Also tied to that is that world-class researchers and engineers usually have a good notion of uncertainty, right? They know how well a problem is solved. Do we only have a rough idea how to do something? Or do we have a really precise idea, which we've already tested in practice, how to solve a certain problem? So that makes a big difference, right? And maybe the last aspect I would like to highlight is a sort of healthy respect about system complexity our planet like our ecosystem is a highly distributed but coupled system things happen on one part of the world that might affect the climate or like environmental aspects on a different part of the planet and with those highly coupled distributed systems there's generally a challenge that you usually know what you would like the system to behave like overall, but you can only influence how individual parts of the system actually operate. So then the question becomes, so how does an individual part of the system have to behave so that the overall system expresses a certain desired sort of overall behavior? Similarly to a bird swarm or swarm of birds, how does an individual bird have to behave such that the bird swarm as overall does a certain thing? And also experience that this is a complex, time-intensive process, I think that is also a very important aspect for a researcher to first guide their research and also to make realistic predictions of what you can do with the technology, which is still under development and not present overinflated expectations. Yeah. Who would you say meet all of these qualities if you know someone personally, maybe except for you? I think a lot of people meet those qualities. Usually people have a mix of them, including myself. I'm not strong at all of those qualities, but I'm strong at a few of those qualities and other qualities 
other qualities come in by working with other people, which maybe also hints at a certain third quality is that you have to be good exchanging ideas and working with people, right, as a world-class researcher, because multiple people who have different sort of strong skills, they usually produce a much stronger team than the sum of all the individuals. Yeah, that's certainly, it's a great approach, I agree. What advice or path would you recommend to people who want to get to that stage, that ideal stage of being a world-class scientific engineer or researcher? So I think the first step, I think, is just to familiarize yourself with research. A lot of times, even for many university educations, people only interface with research at a limited extent. And it's not that easy just because you've taken university classes to really know and have experience with research. And what helps here a lot is that pick your domain in which you're interested and just read some of the research papers. And don't be shy talking to people, talking to researchers. They're usually happy to share their insights with also with non-experts, right? They all know that you can't just have research in an ivy tower, right? Research only is important or only makes a material difference in our world if you can communicate it and get non-domain experts excited. So talk to researchers, try to get involved, just get a feel of it and see if you like it. In the domain of computer science, and specifically blockchain, mathematics is a very important part. I generally would like to encourage people who are interested in, in, in research in computer science or any sort of natural science to, to just work with mathematics. You don't have to be a super strong expert, but just the healthy familiarity with math is generally very helpful. In the, more, in the context of protocol research, of course, you need to be able to write formal arguments about your algorithms, right? And I guess my last recommendation would be to strive for technical excellence and don't rely on buzzwords. Specifically, in, in areas where there's a lot of hype. It is, sometimes people have the tendency to use buzzwords, but don't really care too much about what's going on a technical level. And I personally find it a lot more important for researchers or very strong engineers that they can explain how a certain thing works. And so strive for technical excellence, really get to the inner workings, understand things, and don't rely on buzzwords. Thanks for that great summary. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, all the advice you shared. Do you have any final thoughts or closing advice? I actually do have a final thought. One of the final thoughts is that in my experience, there is no secret sauce, right? A lot of scientific advancements are generated through hard work and a certain willingness to work hard, to be persistent, to pursue a goal, and also tolerate failures or setbacks is very important. Don't assume that, I don't know, that person only figured it out because they were super smart. No, in most cases, they just worked very hard. And so that would be my recommendation for everyone. Don't be discouraged and follow and pursue a goal. And chances are you will make an important contribution. Great. How can listeners get in touch with you if they have any more questions? You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Alex Henschel on LinkedIn. Or you can also contact Dapa Labs if you're interested in general for the blockchain space, not only protocol design. Dapa Labs actually does a lot of things on top of the blockchain, interesting applications. So you can contact Dapa Labs or you can write me an email, contact me through LinkedIn. That would be my recommendations. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for the fun chat. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate if you could take out a second and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks so much and I'll see you next week with another guest.